Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I will be your host for this episode. We are rapidly approaching 2,500 downloads of the podcast and I want to thank all of you for listening and spreading the word about the podcast. Most of the great shows I have discovered have come at the suggestion of friends and I hope you can do the same and we can keep growing the fan base together. If you would like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you would like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon. Any donation level helps and will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast and a thank-you message from the host. Finally, for no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to. I appreciate it, everyone, and without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. Now, before we get started with this episode, I will say this is going to be uh, a slightly polarizing episode to a certain degree Uh, there's going to be talk about uh, certain political figures that are very dividing in this country and just so everyone knows uh, for those that care about American politics I am a moderate Uh, I have friends on both sides of the aisle I have beliefs that run on both sides of the aisle when it comes to politics I am not huge on expressing my political opinions And as a result, I'm just going to stick to the facts in this case when certain political uh, people are brought up or or their viewpoints are brought up. Now, I will address some of the issues that come up uh, in a way that might be somewhat dividing, I guess, just based on my own personal beliefs, but uh, I will do that as the host of the show, and um, if you disagree with me like i said it's you're allowed to do so everybody's allowed to have their opinions i'm just going to offer up mine and in, in certain circumstances and some people might be surprised at some of the opinions i have too from time to time so without any further ado let's actually get into the main story on september 27th in the year 1825 a 25-year-old black man named andrew williams purchased three lots in new york city from a white farmer named john whitehead the lots were small portions of the farm owned by Whitehead that sat in the middle of the borough of Manhattan. When slavery was outlawed in New York in 1827, more free blacks moved to the area and established a haven called Seneca Village. The village thrived for three decades, and eventually Irish and German immigrants settled in the area as well. By 1855, the mostly mixed black and Irish settlement grew to 225 residents with three churches, two schools, and three cemeteries. While there was racial tension between the black and Irish residents elsewhere in the city, it was said that the mixed population of Seneca Village had a harmonious living situation. But a plan formulated by the elites of New York would change things forever. In 1840, an idea was put forward to make a large park in the center of Manhattan. The park was approved in 1853, and by 1857, all the land in Seneca Village and the surrounding area was seized via eminent domain. This meant that the village and its houses, churches, and schools were raised to build Central Park. 
The homeowners were paid for their lots and Andrew Williams was given $2,335, which is roughly $100,000 today, for his house and three lots. Considering he paid $125 for the three lots in 1825, some would say the compensation was fair, but he felt the property was worth around $3,500 or or $150,000 today. But ultimately, the owners had no choice. They took their money and left the area while their buildings were demolished and Central Park was established. All Angels Church was relocated a few blocks away and is the only building left from Seneca Village. Forgotten for almost a century, the park was rediscovered due to academic work in the 1970s and archaeological excavations that occurred in 2004, 2005, and 2011. During these excavations, several building foundations and over 300 artifacts were found. The birth of interest in Seneca Village reached an all-time high in 2019 when historical markers were placed around Central Park to denote points of interest. In a park enjoyed by millions, it only seems fitting to pay tribute to those who were forced to give up what they had owned. But in 1989, the park would become front and center news for something unrelated to its history. A crime occurred that shocked the city and forever changed the lives of many people. This is the story of the Central Park Jogger and the Central Park Five. On the evening of April 19, 1989, two events occurred that would affect the lives of many people. A 29-year-old white female jogger named Patricia Malie, or we'll refer to her as Trisha, went for her normal 9 p.m. run through Central Park. Central Park is an 843-acre urban haven known for its natural landscape, open areas, and many miles of trails for running, walking, and other activities. Her jog that night would turn to terror as she was brutally attacked, dragged off the running trail, beaten savagely, and then sexually assaulted and left for dead. Her naked body would not be found for roughly four hours, and by this point the injuries she had sustained had left her in hemorrhagic shock, having lost 75% of her blood volume. As a result, her body went into a coma from which she would not recover for 12 days. She also suffered from hypothermia due to being left naked in the cold April evening air, and she had several internal injuries. She had suffered a skull fracture that caused her left eye to dislodge from the socket, and the bones in her orbital area alone had 21 different fractures. The start of the attack had occurred on the pathway, but investigators could see clear drag marks in the grass to an area where the ongoing physical attack continued and where Trisha was sexually assaulted. Due to the physical assault she incurred, it took police 24 hours to identify her. As an aside, this is an era before cell phones or electronic devices, so if you didn't go running without an iPhone or some form of iPod or something like that, that police could use to try to track you down. And this is an important thing for anybody who does travel with their cell phone or run with their cell phone or whatever it might be. Having some form of emergency contact built in that phone, since most phones now work on either face ID lock or thumbprint lock or something like that. If you're ever in a situation where your identity needs to be found or somebody needs to be contacted and let's say you're out for a run so you don't have your 
ID, uh, you don't have your wallet, your purse, whatever with you. Phones are a great source of knowledge, but only if it can be unlocked. So I know a lot of people will carry you know, an ICE type of thing in case of emergency, uh, type of either information in their phone or a card on them, or they'll slide it into like their phone case is a great place for it. So that works in 2023, but uh, as we've mentioned, this is attack is going to occur in 1989 when if you weren't running with a form of ID, you know, maybe you had a, a Walkman, I guess, at that point, or some type of AM, FM radio you are listening to when you ran, but likely nothing that's going to come back and, and help police ID you. And the, the attack was so bad that the doctors at the hospital gave her little chance to live, so the investigation was treated as a homicide from the start. However, it wouldn't take long for investigators to hone in on some suspects. As I mentioned before, two separate events were occurring in the park that evening. The first was Trisha went for a run, but unbeknownst to her, around 9 p.m., a group of roughly 25 teenagers had gathered near one of the park entrances, and they were intent on committing a brazen series of robberies within the park. Some members of the group set upon various park attendees, which were mainly joggers and bikers, physically assaulting them and robbing them of any valuables. Originally, their attacks were located in the northern part of the park, around the area of the reservoir, and as it was April and 9 p.m., they had darkness and vast numbers of assailants to their advantage. Around 9.05 p.m., they attacked a competitive bicyclist named Michael Vigna, throwing rocks at him as he biked by. They attempted to assault him, but he was able to bike away. Around 9.15, they attacked a man named Antonio Diaz, beating him while taking his food and beer and leaving him unconscious. The group then set their sights on Garland, Malone, and Patricia Dean, who were riding a tandem bicycle. The teenagers tried to block the path, but the couple wisely sped up towards the group instead of stopping and being robbed and assaulted, and the group scattered. However, several members of the group did try to grab Patricia as they biked by, and the couple would bike to the nearest police call box and notify police of the incident. And as I mentioned, this is 1989. Yes, there are cell phones, but they're obviously not in use as they are today. They would have these police call boxes around the park, or whether it be, and this is back in the day of pay phones too, whether it be pay phones or these call boxes, that was the main way if you were out and about and, and needed to, to notify 911. It was always free to call 911 from, from even from a pay phone. And a lot of 911 calls were made from pay phones because, again, people didn't have cell phones. And so you either had to be close to your house or use somebody else's house or business phone to notify the police. So as I'm sure the park had several of, these, several of these call boxes situated around in case there's a medical emergency or in this case a crime to report, uh, basically the police are going to start to be notified. At around 9.30 p.m., four male joggers were attacked and robbed in the area south of the reservoir. So if you look at a map of Central Park, there's a, a, a what they call the reservoir and the in the northwest corner of the park and so the attacks began 
on the basically on the north side of this reservoir and the group worked their way around the reservoir till around 9:30. they're now in the south area of the reservoir uh, a man named david lewis said he was attacked around 9:30 p.m as well as a man named robert garner a jogger named david good said he was assaulted around 9:47 p.m and sometime around then a jogger named john laughlin was attacked and beaten with a stick and a pipe and he sustained serious injuries that left him covered in blood. Now, as I mentioned, NYPD is getting several calls on the group by this point, and they dispatched officers to the park around 9.30. Now, officers would saturate the park in various vehicles, and they were able to round up about 20 of these teenagers that they believed to have been involved in the assaults. But at this time, when these arrests are being made, they're not yet aware of the near-fatal attack on Trisha. And that's because, as I mentioned before, her body wasn't found for roughly four hours after it was attacked. She was believed to have been attacked around 9.30 p.m. Her body is found at 1.30 in the morning. Or not or her body, she's alive, but she is found at 1.30 in the morning and in a coma. And so at the time that these initial arrests are made, right around probably I would say 10 o'clock or so, police have no idea. They know that John Laughlin is seriously injured, Antonio Diaz is, is unconscious as a result of these attacks, but they both have survivable injuries. But because crimes had occurred, the investigators had planned on interviewing some of these juveniles to determine their involvement in the crimes. However, when Trisha was found, it put additional pressure on the investigators to find who was responsible for her assault, and they knew she was sexually assaulted, and at that point they believed she was going to die, so it would be a, a homicide. From the 20 teenagers that they arrested, five or six were identified by members of the group as having been responsible for the majority of the physical assaults that evening. And three of the later suspects were interrogated that the night of the incident, and that included 14-year-old Raymond Santana, 14-year-old Kevin Richardson, and 15-year-old Stephen Lopez. And so when they talked to police that evening, uh, the evening of the assault, they provide information that there's three other teenagers that are involved in this assault. And that's gonna be 15-year-old Anthony McRae, 15-year-old Yusuf Salam, and 16-year-old Corey Wise. And all, all of the suspects are going to be brought in for questioning the next day, the day after the attacks. And at this point, police were aware of Trisha. Again, they thought that she was probably going to die as a result of the injuries she sustained in the attack, although they know she was sexually assaulted. So they're approaching this as a sexual assault with a possible homicide, and they have these six individuals identified as being potential assailants. Police would learn that four of the six suspects lived in the same housing complex. Salam and Wise lived in this complex and were friends, and Richardson and Lopez lived elsewhere but in the same complex. And McCray and Santana lived in a complex north of the other four. Now, DNA is in its infancy at this point. This is 1989 but it had been used two years earlier in 1987 to get its first conviction. So it's not unheard of 
and they know they have a sexual assault, so they are going to collect DNA from Trisha's sexual assault exam, and this is going to be compared to DNA provided by the suspects, and it's initially going to come back that none of these suspects match the DNA left at the scene, but instead of calling it not a match, police rule the results inconclusive at the time. And again, I mentioned that DNA is in its infancy, so I don't know if it's a case where the police just didn't trust the science enough and didn't want to say just because this new science says that it's not a match, they can't be suspects. We're just going to call it inconclusive because we don't trust the science. I don't know what it was. It just mentioned in the research that police called it inconclusive when in reality the scientists said there was not a match. Now initially the suspects were interrogated by detectives for around seven hours each with those interrogations not being recorded. And Yusuf Salam had falsely identified himself as being 16 when he was originally arrested and this was a big deal because at that time if you were 16 years old police did not have to have your parent or guardian permission to interrogate you and in fact they didn't have to allow your parent and guardian even if they wanted to to sit in on that interrogation so originally salam is being treated as if he's 16 so they're going to interrogate him and get him to provide a written statement without his parents or guardians ever knowing what's going on eventually his parents would find out that he was in custody and they would come down to the police station and demand all questioning stop until they get a lawyer involved. And eventually his lawyers are going to try to toss out the interrogation and the written statement because they're going to say that he was 15 at the time and the parents should have been there. However, the courts are going to rule that what he said to officers and what he wrote was admissible in court because officers were working under the assumption that he was 16 based on the fact he identified himself that way. And many might question why somebody would identify themselves as 16 if it seems to be that you have more rights and protections as a 15-year-old. Well, one, Salam might not have known this. He, or maybe he did know it and he knew that maybe his his parents wouldn't find out about this if he said he was 16 and he didn't realize how much trouble he was actually in so it could be either way it could just be that he was you know being dumb and identifying as 16 not realizing the difficulty he was putting himself in by doing so or as i think is probably more likely he knew that at 16 his parents weren't necessarily going to be involved and maybe he thought he could just go home and they'd never find out about this. And he had actually written in his statement that he had been involved in the crimes, including striking a jogger with a pipe. So police had a pretty strong feeling that they had Salam at the scene of Trisha's attack, uh, just based on his written statement that he provided before they had a lawyer. Now, the following day after the arrest, this is April 21st, Santana, McRae, Richardson, and Lopez arrived at the station with their parents. 
and Wise would arrive without his parents because he was 16. And all five of the suspects made videotape confessions regarding their involvement in the crimes. And although the main focus was on Trisha's assault, because this is just a few days after her assault, and again, doctors still think she is not going to make it at this point, the other attacks and robberies were also under investigation and had also been attributed to the six suspects. When questioned about the attacks on the male joggers, pedestrians, and bicyclists, the suspect stories were consistent and accurate to the facts. When questioned about Trisha's attack, the suspects had a wide variety of times, locations, and other suspects involved. Each suspect admitted to having an accessory role to the crime, claiming to either have held down Trisha or touched her sexually, but none of them claimed to have committed the actual penetrative sexual assault. As the story of the Central Park jogger grew in the media, so did the pressure on the police department to bring those responsible to justice. To quell the public outcry, the NYPD held a press conference on the day of the confessions, telling the media and public that the attacks had been part of a coordinated attack by a group of roughly 30 teenagers. The police stated the teenagers were participating in an activity they called wilding, although this was thought to be a mistake on the part of the police who misunderstood the activity that was actually referred to as doing the wild thing. And this is in reference to the rapper Tone Loke had come out with a song called Wild Thing in 1989, and the song was very popular at the time of the attacks. And in his lyrics, the term doing the wild thing is used as a euphemism for sexual intercourse. While the attacks in Central Park, especially the brutal rape of Trisha, were front and center news, growing crime in the city was already a hot topic in the New York media and public. While many of the rapes and homicides were occurring in some of the more impoverished parts of the city, the bold attack in what is considered a safe place in the city for all to attend was used as both an alarm and rallying cry for stricter policing. Donald Trump, then just a real estate mogul and obviously not known to be a future president of the United States, took out a full-page ad in all four of the New York papers with the headline, Bring Back the Death Penalty, Bring Back Our Police. He paid for it out of his own pocket at the cost of $85,000 in 1989, or over $200,000 in today's money. The rest of the advertisement talked about how the mayor had stated we need to remove hate and rancor from our hearts, but Trump hated these muggers and murderers, and they should be forced to suffer. The ad was widely condemned, by New York politicians who said it did nothing but fan the flames of hate in the city. Yusuf Salam would later say the city turned on him and his fellow suspects after the ads ran and that Trump had manipulated and swayed people into believing they were guilty before they had a chance to prove their innocence. Salam also said he and his family received death threats after the advertisement ran. Drugs and gangs were also among major concerns for citizens of New York and the United States in general, and at first many hoped they could use the attack in Central Park as ammunition in the war on drugs and gangs. However, it was soon discovered that the suspects did not have gang affiliations and drugs were ruled out as being involved in the attack. They were actually deemed to have little criminal behavior and came from stable families with no major financial struggles. 
The narrative of poor, undereducated, and drug and gang given youths quickly fell apart, and media coverage quickly divided the city as the names of both the victim and suspects, which would have normally been withheld due to the victim suffering a sexual assault and the majority of the suspects being under 16, were leaked via the press. The narrative became about the group beating and sexually assaulting a white woman by a number of black and Hispanic youth. Much of the city rallied behind the victim and the suspects and their families continued to receive threats of violence against them. However, members of the black community, including church leaders, denounced the accusations and claimed the youth were being treated differently due to their skin color. The youth's confessions would be retracted within weeks by each of the suspects who all claimed the police coerced them into confessing during their unrecorded interviews when no parent or guardian or lawyer was present. They also claimed they had not been explained their Miranda rights or given access to a lawyer during the interrogations. Despite these retractions, all six youths were indicted on May 10, 1989 for the attempted murder and sexual assault of Trisha, the attacks on the other parkgoers, and the attack and robbery of John Laughlin. The youths were also charged with rioting, which is basically an add-on charge for committing crimes while acting as a large group. They all pled not guilty to all the charges against them. Lopez, Richardson, and Salam were released from custody after their parents posted their pretrial bail. McRae and Santana were unable to make bail, and because they were under 16, they were held at a youth facility until trial. Wise was 16 and therefore classified as an adult and held at Rikers Island until trial. During the pretrial hearings, the presiding judge was determined. Normally cases were assigned via a lottery system, but the court administrator decided to handpick a judge for this case. Judge Thomas Galligan was assigned to this case and was known to be a particularly prosecution-favored judge who handed out harsh punishments. The youth defense attorneys attempted to dismiss the judge, but the request was denied. And just as an aside here, uh, people don't realize there are many different types of judges and oftentimes the success or failure of either a prosecution or defense can come down to which judge is presiding over the case. Some are very justice oriented and they will often make more legal sidings with the prosecution while some are very defense oriented. And sometimes it comes back to judges are attorneys that are elected to oversee the criminal you know, justice and civil justice systems. And some of them came up the ranks as prosecutors and some of them came up the ranks as defense attorneys and often their time on the bench as a judge can be a continuation of their prosecution career or their defense career in how they treat their trials. So a lot of the times you're going to have these attorneys and they all know this, they know which judge is, is which way and the prosecution, if their case is going before a defense favoring judge, is going to try to dismiss that judge and get a different one. And just as in this case, if the case goes before a defense, or sorry, a prosecution favoring judge, 
they're going to try to dismiss that judge knowing that it's going to be a much harder case to try in front of a judge that's likely to side with the prosecution. Uh, but in this case, the request was denied. Most of the pretrial hearings revolved around the interrogations, written statements, and confessions. The defense attorneys argued that their clients have been denied parental or legal counsel during their unrecorded interrogations and had not been advised of their Miranda rights. Salam sought to have all of his statements thrown out because he was 15 and not afforded his parents, and once he was, they offered legal counsel. But the judge ruled they all voluntarily gave their statements and confessions, and Salam abandoned his juvenile rights when he told police he was 16 when he was identified. And this is really what this case is going to be about. I was pretty shocked to find out that these original seven hour long interrogations were not recorded. A lot of states have what are considered in custody statements are mandatory to be recorded and it's for this exact reason is we have no idea other than what the police officers or detectives put in their reports about what was said between them and the defendants in this case and it works both ways i mean it's favorable to the police to have these things recorded because it eliminates a lot of defense arguments if you have on tape you reading miranda rights to your arrestee and them waiving those rights and wanting to talk to you if you have that on tape that's great that's great for your case and there's less chance that anything that that person says after that is going to be thrown out if you're the defense and you've got these tapes and the miranda isn't on there then that's great for you and and since the police are in control of this investigation, it, it, you would think it would be in the benefit of the police officers to have everything recorded. And in the state that I was a police officer in in Minnesota, this is a requirement. It's called the scales requirement, and it requires that in-custody interviews be recorded. And it's to prevent exactly this. It's to prevent the he said, he said, he said, she said, whatever is going to happen in court where you're going to have these juveniles saying, look, the police never read us Miranda. They never told us we had any rights. They never told us that we could have our parents present during this, this interrogation. And anything that was said or suggested to these juveniles or asked of these juveniles is not recorded. So that anything could happen in those seven hours. And then as soon as they have these juveniles ready to confess, then they bring the parents in, turn the video cameras on. Okay, remember what we talked about yesterday. What did you do to this jogger? What did you do on this night? And part of police interviews and interrogations is building rapport with your witness or your suspect, whoever it might be. So this is where the danger of false confessions comes in because as humans, there's a lot of people that, that have a desire just to please. And juveniles in, in general and, and people in general, if they believe in law enforcement or support law enforcement, however you want to say it, if they're talking to a police officer, oftentimes 
and that and that police officer is acting like they're their friend a lot of the times they're going to say just about anything and it seems like that wouldn't be true it seems like people wouldn't confess and we're going to talk about it more in part two of this case about false confessions but if you think about doing anything for seven hours eventually there gets to be a point where you might be willing to admit to doing something you didn't and all of that comes into how much suggesting the police officers do how many leading questions the police officers ask it's very simple to get somebody who's either mentally ill or has a learning disability or is a juvenile to go along with a interview or interrogation that's directed a certain direction by the officers and instead of going into that interview or interrogation thinking I'm gonna let this suspect tell me what their truth is even though it might be a lie the police officers and detectives often go into these interrogations or interviews with the desire to gain a confession from this person and I'm not saying that's always the wrong approach but sometimes that approach will lead to false confessions and again we'll talk about more of that in part two and this is really what this trial these trials are going to come down to is there's not a lot of evidence that's going to support the theory that these juveniles were involved with trisha's assault and rape but there is evidence to suggest that they were in the park that evening committing similar crimes on other people where they're assaulting and robbing them and then these confessions that they were involved in trisha's sexual assault and assault are going to bridge the gap in terms of the the case that the prosecution is building to say although there isn't evidence to show that these juveniles attacked trisha they admitted to attacking other people in the park that evening why wouldn't they have been involved in, in trisha's attack and when this goes to trial which is on june 25th 1990 three of the suspects which are mccray salam and santana are tried first their trial lasts about two weeks and ends on august 8th and now each of the accused had their own defense counsel and trisha testified for the prosecution and was not cross-examined by any of the defending attorneys and this might have been a strategy as we're going to see in the next trial there's not a whole lot the defense can gain by going against trisha and i actually found later on there was a claim that in the same article that said that trisha testified at both trials saying that trisha didn't testify at each trial because of issues with memory loss so it's another example of blade it can't be one if it is the other but i'm going to go with the fact because she actually went on one of the daytime talk shows and talked about testifying so i'm going to go with the fact that she did testify and that this is how it went down and in the case of the defense attorneys as we're going to see in the next trial going after trisha does nothing for your clients and in reality she's we're going to learn she's got memory loss from this whole incident so you're not going to be able to really catch her in any lie she's just going to testify at this point to kind of her recovery process and testify that she was in the park that evening there's just not a whole lot that cross-examination is going to gain for you and it's probably actually going to hurt you 
and again we'll see that in the next trial now the jury in this case consisted of four white four black three hispanic and one asian juror and the, the jury actually deliberated for 10 days before they returned their verdict on august 18th the three juveniles were found not guilty of the attempted murder of trisha but guilty of her sexual assault and the physical assault and they were convicted of the assault and robbery on john laughlin because of their age at the time of the crime they were sentenced under juvenile guidelines each receiving five to ten years in a youth correctional facility on october 22 1990 richardson and wise were put on to trial on october 22 1990 richardson and wise were put on trial during the prosecution's opening statements, Richardson, who was 14 at the time of the crime, broke down after hearing the opening arguments. He began crying and screaming, she lied, and he had to be removed from the court, and his lawyer requested a mistrial, claiming the jury would be tainted by his client's reaction, but the judge rejected his request. And this is something I'm actually surprised doesn't happen more often in court cases, and I think it does. We just don't always see it is during either the defense or the prosecution's opening and closing statements it's kind of a free-for-all that they get to say what they want to a certain degree i mean they can't go completely off the deep end uh, they can be brought in or reined in by a judge but for the most part they're given pretty wide lenience to say what they want to say and so they'll present their entire case to the jury in kind of a narrative form and highlight some of the points they want to highlight. Now, clearly, if you're on trial and they're saying things that you know not to be true or because you were there and you experienced those things and you know that they're lying, it's going to be very tough to listen to somebody tell 12 other people that are deciding your fate what you know to be lies and you don't say anything and this is why i said i'm surprised it doesn't happen more often and i know defense attorneys will sit there and coach their their clients to remain quiet and it's not going to look good for the jury if you lose your cool uh, but as i said i'm just surprised it doesn't happen more often and i also wasn't surprised by the fact that the judge requested or sorry rejected the request for this mistrial because Ultimately, if you are going to uh, declare a mistrial in a case where a client acts out, then all the client has to do is act out every time to, to continue this mistrial at the expense of you know, the state for the lawyers and all that kind of stuff. So I'm not surprised, uh, but I'm, I'm sure it wasn't great for uh, the defense in this case. Now, speaking of the defense, their defense revolved around claims that the police made use of the youth's lack of understanding of the law and their situation to prepare written statements their clients agreed to sign without knowing what they were actually signing. This was part of the unrecorded interrogation and their confessions were due to coercion. So the defense is going to go, look, you can't prove that what you're saying the the juvenile said during these seven hour confessions because they weren't or seven hour interrogations because they weren't recorded and you can't even prove that the that the clients wrote out these written statements there is accusations that the that the written statements appeared to be too grammatically correct and used words that the youths wouldn't have used so there was accusations that the 
the detectives basically wrote the written statements for the kids confessing to the crimes and then just had the kids sign them. Um, but ultimately, uh, I should say, Trisha was asked again to provide testimony at the trial, and this time a defense attorney did cross-examine her. And this is where I said it, it tends to not work out in the defense's favor. I guess his strategy was to try to state that Trisha had a loose sexual history and that she may have sought men that like to abuse her in the bedroom so the injuries she sustained from this assault weren't that bad after all which again I, I don't understand how you could think that that would be any type of a winning strategy a you haven't really done your client any favors in terms of the jury because now the jury just thinks you're cold-hearted you go after a a victim who was out for a jog sustained injuries that dislodged her eyeball that put her in a coma for 12 days that she almost died from and then you try to minim minimalize it in front of the jury i can't imagine that's gonna go over too well so that's why i think in the first trial she was not cross-examined by the defense because again you're just you're only going to lose in that situation. Now, ultimately, Richardson would con be convicted of the attempted murder of Trisha and her physical assault and the assault and robbery of John Laughlin. And as a juvenile, he was sentenced to five to ten years in a youth correctional facility. And the only member of the five to be tried as an adult was Wise, and he was convicted of the sexual assault on Trisha and the assault and robbery on John Laughlin and he was sentenced to 5 to 15 years in an adult prison. Now, Lopez is the last member of the Six, and he's often not referred to as part of the Central Park Five, uh, but there were six that were heavily investigated, and he's the last member of it. And he was due for trial in January of 1991, but then he decided to plead guilty to avoid a trial. And this was because the prosecution had the weakest case against Lopez, and a few, the few witnesses that were willing to testify to his involvement in the crime backed out. And so he agreed to plead guilty to assaulting John Laughlin. And as a result, all the charges for his involvement in Trisha's assault were dropped as a part of the plea agreement. And he was also sentenced to 18 months to four and a half years in a youth correctional facility as part of the agreement. So the fact that he wasn't put on any charges against uh, Trisha is kind of the reason he's not included in the Central Park Five because it really is the Central Park Jogger and the Central Park Five. There's not a lot of talk when you when, when this case is covered about the other victims of the assaults or the other suspects in those assaults. Now the conviction sparked outrage on both sides of the argument. Many demanding justice were, were upset that only one of the suspects was held accountable for the attempted murder, and many others stated that the youth were innocent and not given a fair trial. All of the trial defendants except Santana appealed their convictions, and all four lost on their appeals. The five convicted offenders became known as the Central Park Five and maintained their innocence during their incarceration and detentions. They all admitted to participating in some of the attacks and the lawless behavior that evening in the park, but they denied anything to do with the attack on Trisha. And so stay tuned for tomorrow's part two of this episode, because we're going to discuss some of the twists and turns in this case, 
and it's going to be another case where tomorrow there will be a bunch of narrative in the story because there's a bunch of stuff we still have to cover uh, post uh, them going off to, to prison or their youth correctional facilities. But a lot of it's also going to be kind of analysis of of some of the events after the fact. But we'll break that all down tomorrow. Thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at productions at gmail.com. You can also find me at True Blue Crime Productions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at True Blue Crime Productions. So that's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.